to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. This is my second attempt at this introduction because the first dissolved into a giggle fit. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and have decided to expen- expend it. No, <laughs> explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Hi. My pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Elise. I don't work in clinical research. But, but you do I, giggle. I do giggle and make Debbie giggle sometimes. Okay. Goodness. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so hopefully you feel more informed and that you can uh, trust the outcomes of research. We have a lot that we can talk about. Um, now that we're out the other side of the giggle fit, we're going to take it bit by bit, and we're starting today with something a bit different. Yes. So it's over to you, Elise. Hello. Surprise, it's me at the top of the episode. I have two things to do. First, we're going to read compliments, plural, to Debbie. Mm. I hate this. So as promised way back in earlier episodes, um, I said, if you send compliments to Debbie, who is terrible at accepting them, (laughs) I will read them aloud and force her to hear them on podcast (laughs) thank god we're not recording the video i should i should just start Mm -mm. recording it right now Mm -mm. (laughs) you should see debbie she looks like what you picture a very like dentist averse person in their dentist chair like leaned (laughs) leaned back mouth closed looking like pain is so tense yes okay uh mike says love the show first i'd like to pay debbie a compliment her delivery of the topic is really engaging every podcast (laughs) yeah but he has to say that because he's my husband okay (laughs) like that's great lovely oh i hate it but also mm, thank you husband well he's not wrong Mm. second from rachel debbie is so smart knowledgeable and witty i would listen to a podcast with her teaching me anything and for bonus, she says, oh, and Elise is cool, too. <laughs> <laughs> that, you are cool, Elise. Correct. Oh, that's Thanks. so nice. And you are smart, knowledgeable, and witty. Seems fake. Okay. Mm. Are we done with that torture? We're, good job, Debbie. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Uh, second, I would like to do a quick, a quick little callback uh, to a previous topic we talked about, because this morning, as I was reading through the news... I came across an article um, by Apurva Mandavilli, who is reporting for the New York Times on October 14th of this year, 2023. Uh, and it's all about... Yesterday, as we record. Yesterday, as mm-hmm. we record. Yes, today is the 15th. This, this will be out in sometime in the future. Yes, not in October. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to this article, this is about documentation, Debbie's favorite topic. Um, yes. And I was struck by the enormous consequences of poor documentation. And so I just wanted to share it, a real live uh, example in real time of how incredibly important documentation is. So according, uh, this this first part is a quote um, from the article. It says, a neuroscientist whose studies undergird an experimental Alzheimer's drug was, quote, reckless in his failure to keep or provide original data, an offense that amounts to significant research misconduct conduct and investigation by his university has concluded. Uh, so basically, uh, when I skimmed the article, the sum of the in-between parts of, uh, is that um, some other scientists were skeptical of the claims that about what this drug can do, right? They were like, uh, the things that you're saying this drug can do don't sound like the things that drugs similar to it can do or that this, you know, pathway was one of the words they used that I recognized um, <clears throat> does. So they wanted to see receipts. Uh, And they couldn't get them, so they filed a complaint with the FDA, and a committee was formed to investigate, and, and I quote again, the committee members struggled for months to obtain access to Dr. Wong's files and did not succeed until they involved the college's president. Even so, the report said they were unable to objectively assess the merits of most of the allegations because Dr. Wong had not provided primary data, original images, research notebooks, or other records of experiments. So uh, some of the consequences include one journal has retracted five of Dr. Wong's published papers after their own internal assessment of his work. 
Um, and the pharma company that is researching the aforementioned Alzheimer's drug, which is called Cassava, has lost over $4 billion in value. In, and uh, yeah, it's <laughs> they are moving ahead with uh, the this Alzheimer's drug is in, uh, it says like kind of uh, late stages of clinical research. It wasn't very specific. Um, it mm-hmm. says that they're moving ahead with their studies and with the rest and that they're quote unquote confident in their research um, into this drug. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, were the articles or the research that the, this guy did, was it the preclinical stuff or was he involved in the clinical trials? It was all preclinical. So Mm. that's part of it. Uh, So his work was kind of the foundation, Mm. foundation preliminary stuff that kind of uh, they then used to base their uh, decision to further investigate this drug clinically. Yeah, that's wild. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> if it was, if this had happened in the clinical bit of the research, there are so many safety nets in place, right? There are independent monitors that would go to the hospital site where the research was happening and look at the, um, oh, what did the article say? It, they'd look at the... Uh, primary data, the original images, the research notebooks, etc. They'd look at all of that and cross-check it with the data that's entered in the database to form part of the statistical analysis. So if the pharma company were doing their job at the clinical bit of it, this couldn't happen. What is likely to have happened, or this is me guessing, what often happens is preclinically, an academic researcher will be looking at a molecule or a bunch of molecules or whatever. They'll be playing around in their lab and they'll discover something cool and then a pharma company will buy the rights to it. And the, so it may be that the pharma company had no control over what he did then. Right. The problem is that if that's the foundation for like you then investing how much money in the thing, probably the reason that they're so confident is because they've got data from phase one, phase two. And if they're in late phase, then that means they're in phase three studies showing that the drug is safe and that it works, at least in yeah. some way. But that's that's such poor research practice. Like, it's the golden rule. Write it down. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. It doesn't it doesn't build trust, does it? No, it doesn't build trust. Well, and I mean, this this particular researcher based on the article um, has been a, not keeping good records for most of his work. And this is coming to light. And that's why um, it's not just the five retracted published papers that are under Mm. investigation at this point, like basically all of his work. And one of his colleagues, um, a woman, I believe, named Dr. Burns uh, at the same university is now also under a lot of investigation because she co-publishes with him quite a lot. Mm. Um, And they're, um, you know, so together. Well, and another thing, just so you know, I, the Cassava wanted this to be known in the article, right? They're, um, they're, rep who speaks to the media was sure to say that Dr. Wong um, and Dr. Burns both stood to benefit from this because they had stock in cassava. Um, And so when their research was published and cassava bought the rights and then they started these things, there was a lot of excitement and hubbub about what this drug could do. And the value of their company went up like 1500%. Um, like a lot overnight kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then when it crashed, of course, uh, it lost almost all of that just as quickly. And so um, it's, I don't know that any investigation into these researchers finances have been done, but there is something to be said about the fact that, you know, if they were playing their cards right, yeah. they could say, oh, look at this miracle drug. You want to buy this from me? And then when the the stocks inflate, they sell, they get a lot of money for it, and then they don't have to worry about the consequences theoretically because, oh, well, it just didn't make it through clinical trials. <sighs> yeah. And this is, I mean, there's, there's, there are laws in place about like um, conflict of interest uh, in clinical research, but they're not, I don't think they're robust enough. Like, as a, for example, if you're a doctor running a clinical trial, if you're paid, and I think this number is correct, but it might be a little bit out of date, if you're paid by a pharma company more than $25,000 for, like, consultancy work or something like that, you have to declare it. That doesn't mean you can't do the work. So you could be running a clinical trial 
as a principal investigator, so the doctor in charge at a hospital site of the clinical trial, getting patients in, doing their assessments, gathering the data, submitting that to the pharma company. And you can also be paid by that pharma company to co-author studies, to go and present at conferences, to consult them on how to write the protocol. You can do all of those things. And as long as you fill out a form to declare it, nobody says, hang on, how do we trust that you're being, you know, transparent and doing the right thing here when you're being paid a ton of money for all this extra work? You are de- you are deep in bed with these people. So, yeah, yeah. I don't, it, it give me the ick. There was one yeah. particular investigator that I worked with who was, he's one of these, I think we talked about it before, he's a key opinion leader. Everybody wants his name on the studies. He's what really widely known in this particular therapeutic area. And he's a nice guy. And the site that he's set up are really, really good at recruiting patients. And he's not really like in with the patients day to day. He's got a team of loads of people that do all the work. But it's his name that is ending up on the study. And he gets like... Not only does he get paid for like the work that he does, but also so much extra money for consultancy. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, oh, he's not in today. He's off at this conference with this company or that company. Yeah. Ick, ick, ick. Yeah. He's just, he's got the name, so they're willing to pay the big bucks kind of thing. Just yeah. for the name. Yeah. yeah. Which shouldn't be how it works. It, it sh- yeah. Uh, you can't see, dear listener, but Elise is doing a, <laughs> an ick face. It's yes. the only way I can describe it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that to light and for reinforcing how important documentation is because it is, right? It's not just about cool paperwork. It's also important to document what's going on. After that brief interlude, we're going to pick back up after the last episode where we discussed a few cases, including um, oh, a jolly topic, Nazi war crimes investigated um, during the Nuremberg trials that led to the Nuremberg Code and the Tuskegee syphilis study. So, Elise, you want some more syphilis, you say? No. Mm, I know. No. I, I, she's nodding her head at me, everybody. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, okay, tough luck. You're going to get some more syphilis. Okay. Best of luck. Um, so here's another good example in the USA, uh, land of the free and home of the people with syphilis. No, that's cruel. Um as well as experimenting on your own citizens, there were US-led experiments conducted in Guatemala from 1946 to 1948. How good's that? You can't legally do it on your own soil, so you just outsource it. The experiments yeah. were designed to further the knowledge of sexually transmitted diseases and to discover more viable treatment options in humans. The study clinicians <sighs> deliberately chose Guatemala, and this is I read an article on this, uh, and they said it was to avoid the ethical constraints related to individual consent, other adverse legal consequences, and bad publicity. Yikes. Okay, okay, listen. That's not how ethics works. <laughs> you just, <laughs> just, just go down the road, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, ethics, if it's not ethical to do in the U.S., it's not ethical to do in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. So... But is it because maybe at the time in the 1940s, and I'm just going to put this out there, mm-hmm. did Americans think less of Guatemalan citizens than American citizens? Perhaps? Oh, in the 1940s? Mm. Are you talking about the 2020s? <laughs> yes. Is racism still a thing? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But that, like, that's exactly it. There's a reason that the Tuskegee syphilis study was conducted only in black uh, African-Americans, right? And there's a reason that they went to Guatemala rather than uh, um, a majority white country like Canada. It avoided legal constraints, not ethical constraints. They couldn't (laughs) legally do it in the US, um, so they went overseas probably. And also it may be that, like, the rules about what you had to do ethically, right? You had to get individual consent. I'm assuming that from the sentence, uh, uh, avoiding constraints related to individual consent implies that maybe they didn't have to do that in Guatemala. Legally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting thing. This is always like, I mean, we can throw this one in the philosophy ravine, but the difference between ethics and legal legality, mm-hmm. right? The ethical yeah, like, constraints. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical there. and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, Okay. Agreed. Okay. So, in these very excellent studies, that's sarcasm, by the way, doctors invected soldiers, um, prostitutes, sex workers, prisoners, and patients diagnosed with mental illnesses with syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases without 
any informed consent from the subjects. These experiments resulted in at least 83 deaths. But, like, we don't know because um, I guess the documentation is all held in a different country and hasn't necessarily been disclosed and they knew they were doing dodgy stuff because they were going to Guatemala to do it. Mm -hmm. So how good's the documentation? Not very. In October 2010, the US government did formally apologise and announced that the violation of human rights in that medical research was still to be condemned, regardless of how much time had passed, right? 60 years. However, there have been <laughs> no direct legislative changes because they were already covered in the Nuremberg Code that came out during this trial, right? Like, they knew they were doing a dodgy thing. Um, and I think... <sighs> I think that's that's what really gets up my nose is the fact that there was such a deliberate choice in both this mm -hmm. and the Tuskegee example to go for a vulnerable population, to not give them the tools that they were entitled to. And like they knew they were doing bad things at the time, but they did it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it just really speaks to how dehumanized those groups were in the eyes of the people making those decisions right absolutely like we're an art uh, we like the fact that this isn't yeah this isn't hugely well known and people aren't clamoring for this to be like i would be surprised if anybody has received any form of compensation yeah Ugh. ick Ugh. ick okay Next tragedy. It's just back-to-back -back fun today, Elise. Thalidomide in the 1950s and 60s. Okay. Have you heard of this, Elise? What do you know? I think you have told me about this already a little bit. Maybe. It sounds like something I would do. Because, I'd... because early on, I pointed out, and maybe it didn't make a final cut, right? Maybe it was in one of the, uh, the, the cut pieces. Early on, I pointed out that, like, a lot of clinical research is not done... Uh, or does not include pregnant people. Oh, in, and I said that thalidomide was why? Was one of the reasons, or could, you know, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, this is the one... true. This is the one that was for... Uh, that was used to treat nausea in pregnant women, and then, or pregnant people, I should say, and then um, resulted in um, lots of uh, bad effects on the development of the children. Bingo. Correct. Okay. Well, uh, so Elise is explaining everything from now on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it, the drug was discovered kind of accidentally, as happens, and tested on lab animals in line with the Nuremberg Code. So this research was happening in the 50s and 60s after the Nuremberg Code was published in 1947. The drug was marketed for curing nausea and insomnia um, and uh, was taken by thousands of pregnant people for morning sickness obviously um however the laboratory experiments didn't look adequately at the impact of the drug during pregnancy in animals or in humans what you really need to know is the 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 regulatory setup in the 50s and 60s was different to how it is now okay so um making a drug available happened earlier in the research process right so members of the public were basically taking the drug quite widely um, before we were confident, shall we say, that the, the drug was safe to be taken. So by the time it was realised that there was an issue in 1961, it has been estimated that some 10,000 infants were born um, with a variety of congenital abnormalities, so birth defects. So uh, as Elise referred to these are side effects caused by the drug as the fetus was developing in the womb. Mm -hmm. So um, babies were often born with amelia, which means lacking one or more limbs, or phocomelia, where their hand or foot attached directly to the trunk. Basically, these are developmental um, abnormalities or, or problems, right, caused by um, what the drug was doing to, to the person carrying the baby as the baby was developing. Right. Um, the drug can also cause incomplete bone development, as well as other problems with the ear, the heart, internal organs. It's a, it's a real mess. So, in the UK, the drug was licensed in 1958 and withdrawn in 61. So it was only out for like three years max. And in that time, 2,000 babies were born in the UK with side effects of their mothers taking thalidomide. I should say with their parents taking thalidomide, with around half 
So that's a thousand babies dying within a few months. Wow. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. 466 survived to at least 2010. And there is a thalidomide trust in the UK that is still, uh, I looked at their website um, recently, supporting 436 beneficiaries as of 2023. So they're supporting um, people who suffered the side effects or those uh, related to or caring for those who um, suffered the side effects of, of thalidomide uh, taken during pregnancy. The drug was also widely available in Spain, West Germany, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So it's it's not just the UK that was affected. There's kind of a whole a whole bunch of countries that accepted the drug and then uh, went, oh goodness, no, this is terrible. But despite being always keen to bash the USA, here's an example of where <laughs> they got it right for once. <laughs> Sorry, Elise. <laughs> uh, you know what? I mean, the Guatemala example is just way too. Uh, uh, recent in our discussion to have anything to say there. <laughs> okay. So uh, this is all because of an amazing pharmacologist called Frances Oldham Kelsey. She got it right. She worked for the FDA and refused approval to market the lidamide in the USA, saying further studies were needed. So what that basically means is you can't advertise your drug. Okay, that was what I was going to ask because, mm. like, marketing to me does sound like I'm marketing like a product. I want to inform consumers it exists. I want them to mm -hmm, think of it mm -hmm, as desirable. Mm -hmm. um, so, is that the same use of the term market yes, here? Yes. Yes. Okay. And and it's not just for the patients, right? It's also mm -hmm. um, for doctors to tell them that it exists and kind of do the conference circuit to be like, oh, hey, try this new thing. Da -da -da -da. Right. Right. Um, yeah, because interestingly, and I think this is this may be one of those facts that has just seeped into my brain based on no facts. But in the US, you get direct to consumer advertisements for medicines, right? Yes, like yes on we the do. telly, and they're and they mm -hmm. and they they read out all the ask your doctor about about this for rheumatoid arthritis, and you're like, yes. going, I don't have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, yes, right. That doesn't happen in the UK, nor most of the rest of the world the only other country where i think direct to consumer advertising for medicines happens is new zealand hmm. isn't that interesting yeah i have a lot of feelings about it it's bad mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. it's predatory anyway, uh as is most of your healthcare system as is and also most of marketing the pharma uh, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and marketing <laughs> correct the whole consumerism <laughs> anyway Capitalism. Oh. it always comes back to that debbie it, the more we try to not look at it, the more it's just there. <laughs> the elephant in our rooms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so she said, I'm not confident that you know what this drug is doing. You need to do some more studies. Which this is enormously Francis reduced. Kelsey. Francis Oldham Kelsey, yeah. This, which enormously reduced the impact of thalidomide in US patients. Now, that's not to say, which is not to say that no thalidomide was. Uh, available, right? Thalidomide was not approved for sale in the United States at the time, but <laughs> 2.5 million tablets had been distributed to over a thousand physicians during the clinical testing program. Okay. Right? But because it wasn't more widely available in that it wasn't for sale after Francis Oldham Kelsey um, refused the approval, um, no matter how many of the people took it during the, the, the clinical testing program, at least 17 children were born in the United States with thalidomide-associated deformities because of the tablets that were available during that clinical testing program. But 17 is so, so much less than 2,000. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. I mean, imagine if it had been as widely used in the U.S. as it was in the U.K., like the population being much higher, too, oh, could yeah. have had oh, yeah. it's just huge impacts. I have a question <laughs> um, for that surprises people who me. are not pregnant. Were there side effects that were not anticipated as well? Like, or was it primarily the um, birth defects? I don't even know. And, and that is because the narrative around thalidomide mm. is so entirely focused on the impact on fetal development that it, <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. How bad Fair is enough. that? No, I mean, um, that makes sense. But, I think that 
You know, it's like when there's a when there's something terrible happening, you maybe don't notice. Oh, look, there's a rat over there. Something substantially yeah. less terrible. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there were side effects. There, every drug has side effects. Sure. But the <laughs> the worst side effect is the thing that we're all focusing on, and rightly Absolutely. so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Francis Autumn Kelsey received the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service at a 1962 ceremony with JFK. How cool is that? Good. That's very cool. What a hero. What a hero. Um, so, because of because of this, right, what I tried to focus on is, yeah, terrible things happen, but what can we learn from it, right? This led to the establishment of really formalised pre-marketing approvals of new drugs. So, government regulators conducting that safety and efficacy review before they're allowing a pharma company to market and sell their drug, the licence as we know it today. Um, it also led to very strict requirements in reporting adverse drug reactions. So there's a whole bunch of jargon that we use in clinical research and we do it so that it um, is less transparent. I don't think that's why we do it. We do it because we have terminology for stuff, but it <laughs> yeah. has the end result of making things less transparent. An adverse event is any untoward medical occurrence that happens in a patient during a clinical trial, whether that's um, you know, your your baby is born with one of these um, terms, one of these uh, defects, or you have a headache. They're both adverse events. The term adverse drug reactions is used when there is a reasonable possibility that this side effect is caused by the drug. So in this case, um, you know, you're, we're seeing a very, very high correlation between people taking thalidomide and having babies born with these developmental defects. So uh, they are reported as adverse drug reactions. If it's something that's like in the mechanism of action of the drug or, you know, you inject someone with the drug and then they have an immediate allergic reaction. That's probably a reaction to the drug, isn't it? Let's be mm -hmm. real. OK, um, so. We in a clinical trial, we capture all of the adverse events, but there's also um, further reporting requirements for adverse drug reactions, particularly if they fit certain criteria to be called serious. Because um, I could have an adverse reaction to a drug that's a little bit of like, you know, an injection site, like a, a, a wheel and flare, like swelling redness sort of reaction, yeah, an that allergic happened, reaction. That mm -hmm. happened to me on Friday. With your allergy shot. With my allergy shot. Every Friday I get a nice oh. little goose egg of a, of a swelling welt. Lumpy, bumpy. And it's itchy. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it, so I that's just an suffer through reaction. it. Yeah. What a because hero. Because it's normal. It, well, it's it's expected, right? Um, yes. And it's not serious. It, if if mm -hmm. that had led to your untimely death, that would be a serious adverse drug reaction. Yes. Or, right. you know, all the anaphylaxis stuff, right? Some Very people serious. do get that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Some absolutely. people do get that. And there are also requirements for if the event is ex expected or not. So you said it perfectly mm -hmm. yourself, right? Your your injection egg result is <laughs> such a... Why do I phrase things so weirdly? Because I called it an egg. It, that's what I get. I get a little and egg. now it's in my head that you've got an injection egg. Cool yeah, beans. injection egg. <laughs> your injection site reaction, your injection site reaction, at least, is a perfectly expected result of having mm -hmm. an allergy shot. But... Mm -hmm. um, your skin turning green would be unexpected. Pretty cool, though. Pretty cool. <laughs> My origin story. <laughs> it's uh, allergy girl. <laughs> she's allergic to everything. Everything. She's turned into the color of the things that make her sick. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So... We've kind of already talked about this, right? The the consequences that thalidomide has had on research today. So it's not just about the marketing authorization for drugs. It's not mm -hmm. just about the adverse uh, drug reactions reporting. Um, but also, as we talked about, the, the inclusion of pregnant persons in research is very restricted. And it's rightly so. We need to show that the drug is safe in pregnant persons before it's widely available on the market and the only way to do that is to test it so the difficulty is there's also a kind of what's the word liability issue here right mm -hmm. in that the drug company knows that if they want to sell their sell their drug on the market they need to 
uh, provide data that it's safe for pregnant persons or pregnant persons can't take it which for something like the COVID vaccines is hot garbage yeah. because they were mm-hmm. higher risk patients to begin with. Um, but if something goes wrong like thalidomide, the financial implications for that company would be enormous. Yeah. So everyone's a little bit nervous about doing it. Um, and usually what happens is you have, um, and I'm going to use a term and you're going to laugh at it, spontaneous pregnancies... Mm. so not jesus <laughs> christ pregnancies i know because I, I know you not jesus christ pregnancies what i'm talking about is i'm a patient on a clinical trial and although the criteria say i shouldn't be pregnant i did it anyway because i do what mm-hmm. i want you know because mm-hmm. pregnancy sometimes just happens yeah well, yeah well. when you trip and fall and <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep uh, so i hear <laughs> um so and in those situations they will monitor that patient very closely and see if there are any side effects and once you've got a few reports and you know baby's born perfectly fine you go oh maybe it's safe and maybe now's the time to pursue the clinical trial because we've got five or ten patients worth of data from these quote-unquote spontaneous pregnancies um weirdly none of the babies born ever turn out to be the messiah who knew um It's, it's such a strange term, but it, that's what it means. It's like un- unexpected yeah. um, while you're on a clinical trial kind of situation. Yeah. But I, I th- um, my opinion is that drug companies need to be way more proactive about this. Like um, when I was just starting out in research, doing studies in children was kind of like the hot topic of, of having a pediatric investigation plan. And how are you going to get the data? How are you in parallel? You're demonstrating that it's safe for adults. How are you demonstrating that it's safe for kids? And I think they need to include pregnant people in that too. Yeah. All right, I'm getting off my soapbox for exactly one minute before I get back on it again. <laughs> yes, good, good. <laughs> okay, so before you think that all of the examples are ancient history, because we've talked about, you know, the Second World War, the 1940s, the 1960s through to the 1970s, um, let me remind you of one that we talked about, I think, in episode three that happened in my lifetime, and not just in my lifetime just before my working life started. So this is TGN1412, Tegenero1412. That was the name of the company, also known as Theralizumab. And Bless you. <laughs> you know, I knew I knew Elise was going to make a joke. I just, I know her so well. So here's Listen, the funny it thing. It sounds like something I would name a demon in my D&D campaign for my well, players. You can, you can have that name. That's I will. Fine. I will do, do that. Um... So here's an interesting thing. You know, like, um, names for drugs often sound kind of alike. Mm-hmm. Like, and ridiculous. Um, the endings are often mm-hmm. similar. Mm-hmm. Anything that ends in ab, mab, theralizumab, I can't think of literally any other example now. My brain is empty. That's because it's a monoclonal antibody. That's just the type of molecule that it is. Mm. Okay, you don't need to know that, but it's it, it, it tells you that they're kind of similar and... It's interesting to know because monoclonal antibodies are... So they're man-made proteins that act like um, something that is going to restore, enhance, modify the an immune action, okay? So I don't, I don't really want to give you an uh, immunology 101, but antibodies mm-hmm. are, are really important in your body's immune response and monoclonal antibodies are a particular type of, of thing that we make so that's why it's theralizumab the mab m-a-b monoclonal antibody correct so this is a, a an antibody this this molecule right and the idea of it was that it was going to uh, manage mitigate control an immune response via a cd28 receptor I'm assuming that we have some very expert scientists listening to this podcast, so they'll know what that means. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> yeah, but you don't need to. It basically, send it's us, all about... Send us an email the... if you know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, it's all about managing the immune response. So, the, uh, it, the, the hope was that it could be used to treat kind of... Um, um, Oh, my brain is so empty. The idea was that it could be used to treat autoimmune disorders. 
Mm-hmm. So things like um, rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. or um, leukemia, right? Which is a, a, a cancer of your blood cells, blood. your white blood cells. Okay? Yes. So drug was discovered in Germany. That's not relevant, but it's interesting. And developed by this company, Tegenero. Uh, and originally intended for this kind of immune function treatment. And the first in human phase one study began in March 2006 at the Parexcel. Parexcel are a CRO, contract research organisation, so they work on behalf of sponsors. They have phase one clinical sites. I think they have four. But anyway, the one that this was done at was in Northwick Park Hospital in London, UK. Um, And I started working in clinical research in September 2007. So this was still like hot, hot topic at the time that I was getting into my career. Okay, I've talked about this before, but I did a bit, little bit more research between then and now. So a bit more detail. Eight healthy male volunteers aged 19 to 34 were recruited onto the study. Six were given active, two were given placebo. The drug was given by IV intravenous, not phase four, Elise. Um, starting at 8am with an interval of only 10 minutes between patients. Each infusion lasted from three to six minutes. So I think last time I said, oh, there's probably like 30 minutes between infusion. It wasn't. It was really, really quick. And that's a lesson that we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was wrong before. I do apologise. After about 50 minutes after the first patient received their dose. So by this point, you know, we're, we're kind of into maybe four or five patients receiving their dose, the first participant reported a headache, fever and pain. Okay? Maybe Mm -hmm. these are expected side effects from taking a a drug. Um, Like your your immune injection site reaction, right? Shortly after, the remaining participants who received the actual drug, so not the patients who got placebo, um, became ill, vomiting, complaining of severe pain, and they were all taken to ICU, which is intensive care unit, uh, within 18 hours of their dose. Wow. So, pretty quick. Um, As I said before, the first thing to say, all all six of the men survived, although not without complications. Um, This might be a bit graphic, so maybe skip forwards 15 seconds if you want. One volunteer did have to have some of their fingers and toes amputated. All of the men were reported to have experienced, and this is jargony, but I'll explain it, um, severe cytokine release syndrome resulting in angioedema, similar to a severe allergic reaction. So uh, cytokines are another kind of immune uh, molecule, right? Like I said, antibodies were, cytokines Mm -hmm. are. They do different things, but um, basically what happens, uh, if you... You've experienced an allergic reaction, I'm assuming, Elisa. And you know how it can kind of... It ramps up. Right? Yes. Like if you have hay fever, right? You start throwing mm-hmm. your arm a bit sniffly and then you rub your eye and, oh, God, then you, you can't stop crying and you're sneezing a thousand times. Okay. That is because the immune reactions will often kind of self-sustain and build. Like if you have an an itchy immune reaction site, if you itch it, that causes more stuff to go to the area and it gets itchier and itchier and itchier and itchier. Okay, imagine that, but turn it up to 11 and it's not just an itchy immune site, it's everything else that's going on in your body in an allergic reaction. So um, it's very, very serious and very... Uh, dramatic and this kind of self-sustaining um, situation. So um, angioedema, just because I know that I said that term, it's basically just a fancy word for um, swelling, like just under the skin, like the mucous membrane swelling. So okay. um, the kind of swelling that you see really commonly in severe allergic reactions, but it's kind of happening, inflammation is happening everywhere right it's a bad time it's a real bad time yeah and when you know when, when swelling gets to the level that these 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 men were suffering from it it can it can really affect the body's function in in organs and skin and blood circulation a real mess okay so the patients were treated with steroids to reduce the inflammation and their blood was and this is wild filtered in an attempt to remove that active 
um, drug from their circulation because it was it was hypothesised that it was kind of maintaining the reaction. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. So, um, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, attended the site rapidly, like the next day, conducting a four-cause inspection. What do you think okay. a four-cause inspection is, Elise? I'm making a guess here, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. based on based on what it's based on the story, I would say a four cause inspection is something has occurred. We have a God. reason to go investigate. A uh, cause, normally, you might say. yeah, there is a cause, and we're going mm-hmm. to go do an inspection to find out if this was misconduct, if it was a mistake. We just need to know what happened. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, absolutely, exactly correct. So, uh, regulators like the MHRA or the FDA or whoever else will often do. Uh, like routine inspections so at at a set cadence at a set frequency they'll go visit hospitals pharma companies whatever and check that they're doing stuff right those are routine inspections but when something happens slash goes wrong um or they get a report of something happening they can do a full cause inspection which is exactly what this one was so yeah the mhra turned up and went let's let's get into this and at the same time the German authorities inspected the the German side of the operation, so the manufacture, testing, storage and distribution of the drug in Germany. It was kind of a, a nice bit of international collaboration. So um, the MHRA looked at Tegenero and Pyrexel's preclinical work, the records, the documentation. Um, it's the full processes. Circle. It's full circle, right? The patient's notes, like all of their medical care, um, the information that we had about the drug... Um, and uh, the the conclusion was um, we've learnt a lot from what the MHRA called an unpredicted biological action of the drug in humans so this this reaction we did not predict yes I am I I think we did talk about this a little bit before but Mm -hmm. the, the idea that it could be so severe Mm. and not show up anywhere prior to the first in human, right? Is that yeah. the point of all that stuff prior mm-hmm. to first in human is to do our best to eliminate this kind of thing from happening, right? Exactly. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, how how do we get to this point and have it still be unpredictable? Because there are so many variables in our lives and in human bodies Um the reason that we do first in human studies, which are usually very small, like this one was eight patients, six receiving mm-hmm. an active dose, is because you cannot mitigate for all of the risks. Mm-hmm. You cannot test a drug and be 100% sure that when you put it in a human, something unexpected isn't going to happen. There's always a 0.0000 whatever percent chance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's more difficult in molecules that modulate the immune system. And I think we talked about this before because you are testing them in immune naive lab animals. And by that, I mean, they've been raised, these lab animals that we do animal testing on, whether we think it's right or wrong, have been raised in a, in a sterile environment. So their immune system is chill. It's like, I've got nothing to do. I've just been here my whole life chilling. I've not had infections. I've not had a cold. I'm, I've got nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas your immune system, my immune system, and the people in this trial's immune system, we've been exposed to bugs and allergens and stimuli from day dot. So we're like a primed... Always um, ready to fight. Yeah, a primed landmine, right? And you've just <laughs> got to get the wrong trigger for it mm-hmm. to blow, mm-hmm. right? And unfortunately... Um, we didn't predict that this was going to happen. Right. So like these, in these men, their immune systems were essentially like, this drug was introduced to their system and their immune system was like, oh my God, it's like DEFCON 4, like everything 
is go, wrong. Go, 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 And like, it just kept yeah. going because it was and like, it we gotta fix it, it. And then it's like, it's not getting fixed. Fix it more. And like, it just keeps exactly. building okay. on top and this of is itself. Why, this is why it's called a cytokine storm. It's because if you, if you imagine, right, in that situation, you've got all of the little messengers running around screaming about how terrible everything is. Each messenger activates three more messengers. And each of those three more messengers goes and activates three more messengers. And so you end up with this cascading effect mm-hmm. where... It's just more and more and more. Side note, if if you're ever involved in an emergency response, this is why you're not supposed to go to an emergency site unless you've been called in and they've asked for volunteers. So uh, it's exactly the same problem. Just want to throw that out there, a little emergency uh, education for the group <laughs> listening. Don't, don't show up if you haven't been requested. Thank you. Okay. Look at Elise doing a little bit of extra education for all of us. Listen, you get to educate people in your area of expertise all the time. I just want to say, you do your lady. You do your own. It's the same thing, you know. (laughs) It's the same thing, though. It's the it's humans mimicking their own immune systems. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Okay. I can't wait for my immune egg to appear. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to leave that whole giggly section in where we laughed about your immune egg because I've just made a callback to it. Good job, Debbie. I'm proud of you. This is going to be fun. You're going to delete both things is what you're going to do. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It's too embarrassing. Anyway. (laughs) So, um, it was an unexpected, unpredicted biological action, but it did prompt a bunch of guidance and rule changes. Okay. For first in human studies, especially those involving the type of molecule, the type of medication here, right? 22 recommendations were made, including the need for independent expert advice before a high risk study was allowed. High risk. How do we know something's high risk? Good question. Um, It would be... Like, if it's going to be something like a monoclonal antibody, you're straight in the high-risk category. Ah. If it's a type of molecule that we've never seen before, we've never used before, um, straight in the high-risk category. Whereas if you're taking something like... um, Like, you've got two painkillers, and like paracetamol, uh, Tylenol, and Nurofen, ibuprofen, and you just stick them together, right? We know how both of those molecules behave. And if they behave in a lab animal together the same way they've behaved separately that wouldn't be high risk right if right. you've got a weight of evidence about how the thing works or maybe it's very similar to a molecule that we already have in humans or it's um like it's exactly the molecule that's all the way down there in clinical trials but we've just added this extra something or other to it to stabilize it or make it slow release or something right um and also if the here's the thing if the half-life of the drug is very short. So if it goes into your system and is metabolized out very quickly, the time that it will have to do stuff, less. So it's kind of a calculation of the sort of molecule it is and the sort of damage it could do if something unexpected was to happen. But immune stuff is more likely to be high risk because I think we generally just know a little bit less about the immune system than we'd like to. Sometimes it does weird things, right? Like we still aren't, completely on top of managing allergies we just manage the symptoms really it's true mm-hmm. anywho so um yeah get get some expert advice uh here's a good one testing only one volunteer at the time in case there were rapid ill effects so waiting 24 hours between doses instead of 10 minutes that mm-hmm. would have made an enormous difference not that it would have stopped the unpredicted response from happening right that's, that that unfortunately was going to happen, but it would have happened to one patient as opposed to six. Right. And I think the important thing that, that I always like to stress here is is um, the, the actions of the medical personnel saved these patients' lives in that one of them was clued up on the, the literature. The, the It's called the investigator's brochure, the, the summary of information about the drug and remembered this reference to, you know, monoclonal antibodies and, and cytokine storm and was like, right, I think that's what we've got going on. And in the hospital where they were, they had a really well-equipped and available intensive care unit so they could immediately mm-hmm. move the patients. It's literally within the same building I've audited in the Norfolk Park Hospital. It's, it's one building, so they went down a few floors or up a few floors, whichever it was. Um, 
and that that saved their lives like quick effective medical response and um close proximity to life-saving care saved their lives so um now there's an expectation that if you're doing one of these kind of phase one studies you've got that kind of access to Mm -hmm. um you have advanced life support training for your staff you've got a crash car on hand etc etc i have a question do you think and this would be speculation so feel free to say i just have no idea but do you think if the same thing were done today if the same thing were observed today the first patient receives the dose within a few like 50 minutes or whatever starts having headache fever pain yep and there's a 24-hour waiting period do you think that the second patient simply like the full study stops where it yep. tracks? Okay. So, because I guess like there's always the possibility, right? That like one person has this reaction and the yep. next person will not have this reaction. So what do they, do they just say like, how could they uh, proceed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. That's a, that's a good question. Now, um, I don't know, but <clears throat> speculating it, how, how they would build the protocol is exactly that. Uh, in that they dose one, they'd wait 24 hours. And it may be that they would build into that like an approval step so that someone has to actually say, like the, the principal investigator mm. at the site has to say, I've seen this patient, they're doing okay, we're going to dose the next person. Or not. And it may not be that it's just one person, it may be that there's a committee set up to mm-hmm. review the immediate data available and to sign off on it. Or it may be that they just go forward to the next dosing if the patient's well enough, but within certain mm-hmm. criteria, right? Like... 10% increase in vital signs, whatever, whatever. Um, but you're right. It could be that that particular patient just had a uh, bad reaction. And so how do you safely expose another patient to it? Lower the dose. Mm. Take the dose down an enormous amount. Mm-hmm. Give it to somebody with all of the prophylactic care available and see mm-hmm. if the same reaction happens. Because if it does, then you know it's the drug. Yeah, yeah. That makes and sense. if it doesn't, I, yeah, then maybe I imagine, it's just that lad. Right. I imagine with um, something as severe as what occurred here, mm-hmm. the idea of like, okay, even if it's like one in 10,000 people are going to have this reaction, we can't market Not that. Not worth it. Mm-mm. Right. So Not it doesn't even it. matter if it's, a, if it's a one-off or if it's like every single person in the study is going to have mm-hmm. this reaction. Um, but if it's something's you know significant like still significant and still bad but not like to the point of like this yeah 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 so i i don't know but that that, those are just some ideas off the top of my head for what maybe could be done um there were also some recommendations around the calculations about the safe dose for humans and not assuming it's the same as for animal models mm. i think that's something that we're not always very good at we we sometimes assume a bit too much from animal models um there is also a phase one accreditation scheme for phase one units particularly aimed at the sort of places sites in hospitals that conduct first in human studies what what so, does a voluntary oh. phase one unit accreditation scheme mean Okay, cool. So a phase one unit is a place that conducts these phase one studies. Mm-hmm. Um, not all phase one studies are first in humans. All first mm-hmm. in human studies are phase one though, right? That's that's kind of the, the yeah, Venn yeah. diagram situation. Mm-hmm. Um, what it means is there are certain criteria that like in the UK, the MHRA have set out and said, if you want to get this accreditation, you have to have these standard operating procedures and your staff have to be trained to this level and you've got to have these facilities and this crash cart and um, these kinds of things in place so that you are able to respond to like you've got to have an emergency doctor on call if they're not on site they're on call and you've got to test that on call system two three six times a year whatever it is like Mm -hmm. there's a there's a whole set of recommendations that have been made and the MHRA inspects those units to give them the accreditation so it's kind of a big feather in their cap if they've got it and they can say to all the sponsor companies say oh hey we're phase one accredited by the MHRA um because it shows that they've got procedures and training and processes in place to run the studies well and to keep the patients safe so it's it's kind of a big a big plus I think for a lot of the sites to have this accreditation because it's inspected by the MHRA and, and um, 
and they're quite detailed in kind of what they go into and what they look at to make sure that these sites are going to be able to do a good job. Okay. Any questions on any of those examples? No, I don't think so. Okay. So um, a few more examples today uh, to add on to last times. Let's, let's not forget we talked about the experiments in Guatemala. We talked about um, thalidomide and we talked about uh, Tegenero 1412. Honestly, uh, from last episode to this episode, this is a few of the known tragedies in medical research. I've tried to cover kind of a wide range and a, a, a variety of different root causes or reasons why this stuff happened. Like some of it is like the Tegenero 1412 one. Oh, God, we didn't know something scientifically that we should have ideally known. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like risk risk is there in clinical trials. And some of it is, oh, oh human beings are, are terrible. Okay, good to know, you know. But each each example that I've selected has, has tr- tried to be used as an example to show the progress over the last 100 years. There are now many more requirements and safety nets in place than there were, you know, in the 1930s. Does that mean it's perfect? Nope. Does that mean there aren't still people acting unethically? Nope. But in my experience, particularly in the clinical bit of clinical research, maybe not so much the preclinical bit, because that's not my area of expertise... There are too many eyes on research now for people to be able to get away with stuff for too long, right? The the picks or it didn't happen mm-hmm. <laughs> philosophy is really, really quite ingrained in research. And, and people are pretty good about, oh, hang on, I didn't see that. People mm-hmm. make mistakes. You know, like People will miss something. But kind of the widespread universal crappy behaviour... I don't think it would go undiscovered for long. And we also have mm-hmm. like a ton more technology on our side now than we did 100 years ago. And by that, I mean, we're asking in clinical research, most of the studies that I've ever worked on have had an electronic database. So that the site staff enter the data into this electronic database. And as soon as that data is entered, you can run analysis on it to determine, is this data in the normal range for whatever the data point may be? And... You can look for patterns. So if someone's making up the data, we know this because human brains are wild and hilarious things, we're going to use the same numbers again and again and again. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to see a pattern where you go, that's a little too perfect. Right? Um, There are are just so many mechanisms in place now uh, and laws in place now, right, that some of these things just could not happen anymore. And even if, like, the, the... Theralidizumab example that we talked about, the Tegenero one. I shouldn't use the big word, sorry. Um, <laughs> even if that did happen now, exactly the same way, it would only affect one patient because of the rules in place mm-hmm. for dose one, wait 24 hours. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but I think it's better. And that, like, that's all we can ever do, right? Is keep striving to get better and get better. Yeah. Honestly, this is. Uh, there are more examples. I could talk about this forever, but I think I think we'll leave it there for today. Yeah, I think it shows a nice arc of progression, right? Like the differences between, well, just like all the things that have pushed us to make better rules, regulations, ethical codes, mm-hmm. um, all the things. And then, you know, the the outcome, right? Like I think about the example from like yesterday that we started the the episode with of like this article that says like all these other people were like this seems suspicious and there was there was a way forward for them yeah in such a way that like we're not going to end up seeing some you know really harmful uh, effect because of this now uh, hopefully right and like so it's not that there aren't going to be bad actors or there aren't going to be surprises but that we have a lot more in place to try to suss out more quickly the bad actors and have guardrails on so that if something unpredicted happens, we're not having outcomes like we had with um, the Tegenero case or the um, the one that caused, I have words. Thalidomide? Yes, that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you mm-hmm. have words and I have them also. Uh, yes, I do think there's... To me, progress has definitely been made. I think there's a lot more that still should be done, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of like who's included or not in mm-hmm. research. Right? It's not. It's not equitable. Um, you know, just because a drug works in a white man doesn't mean it's going to work in everybody. Mm-hmm. The fact that the birth control pill 
um, not the birth control pill. Well, yeah, some hormonal contraception, but the morning after pill doesn't mm-hmm. work if you weigh over what 175 pounds. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. shut up. And nobody, nobody tells people that. Nobody tells people that. I also think there's more that needs to be done with the kind of oh, the capitalism of our for-profit pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. because how can people's health and well-being be something that you make money out of? Yeah, I just don't get it. No, I mean, uh, there's been so much recently in kind of the the zeitgeist, at least for those of us who are perpetually online watching YouTube and... Where else would you be? What else is there to do? Yeah, exactly. I'm with you um, about similar things, right? Um, The the Green Brothers and their work with, um, you know, their communities, for example, to try to get uh, Johnson & Johnson and then another company that I have forgotten to, like, change patents... And um, requirements, money, like cost requirements on um, tuberculosis drugs, right? Like, I mean, yeah. this is, there's so much from from the point of preclinical, which we started today with talking about this uh, per, this yep. researcher in New York, uh, all the way to the point of it's, it's in patent phases and it's, you know, years down the line from its release and its marketing. And now we still have things we need to do. And all of it has some root cause that we can trace back, at least in part, if not fully, to some sort of greed and capitalist like maximize for the shareholders, maximize for yourself kind of bottom line that can be pretty shitty. Ick. Real ick. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, and I don't know. Definitely. I mean, I don't, th- that's not a unique problem to clinical research, right? It's, it's no. a, it's a place where we can see just how terrible it is to have these systems. The problem that I have with it, particularly in clinical research, okay, it's, it's where I work, so it's it's right in my face all day, every day, mm-hmm. which means I can't look away from it. But also, I mean, like, so as an economic system, capitalism is, is in our whole lives and our whole worlds, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something particularly disgusting mm-hmm. about the rampant profiteering yeah. with, with people's lives. Yeah, because right? you it's, don't it's, have an option. Yeah, and that's it. You can choose whether you buy car A or car B mm-hmm. if you're privileged enough to be able to afford a car, right? Mm-hmm. You can choose whether you live over there or over there. Well, maybe. Maybe. Uh, you know, but you you can't choose whether you're born with um, an illness or or needing certain things. And, like, like, I always think the example that always comes into my head is insulin. Mm-hmm because of a friend of ours and it just makes me so sick that mm-hmm. insulin is something that we've known about and it's not expensive to manufacture mm-hmm. but the amount that people have to pay for something that like my body through luck just creates yep like why am i expecting someone else to pay for something okay like maybe you need to cover the cost of it because there are costs associated with it Nobody should be profiting off the fact that your body doesn't create insulin. And you need it to live. Like, right, you yeah, need it it's to not live. Like, it's not, not like the pink hair dye that I put in my hair that's for fun. You know, I can live without that. Easy peasy. Yep. yep. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. And obviously, Elise is making good on her promise to read out compliments. So do it. I hate it. (laughs) Please do subscribe to the podcast so you get the next episode automatically. And please, please do rate and review. Um, You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page at clinical.research.intro. Our website is available to you at intro2clinicalresearch.podbean.com. There are transcripts available and other information on that too. Finally, a big thank you from us to our friend Sam Winnie for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro. Thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. <clears throat> so nasty, my throat today. You sneezed <clears throat> just as I we know. started. That was Listen, hilarious. Sometimes my allergies are bad. <laughs> sometimes I walk the dog sometimes I- and then remember to take my allergy pill. <laughs> Sometimes I still talk to my friend and I'm so allergic to her, I just sneeze. Ahem. Hello, my name is Elise. How's that? A lot of energy coming out of me. I don't know how I'm going to edit this, but that's future news. Oh my God, Debbie, it always happens. Please don't die. Please don't die. It's just allergies. That would be... It would be real embarrassing. I'd be like, oh, we're halfway through the podcast. I'm calling 911. Elise has dropped out of the frame. I, can mm-hmm. you call 911 from, okay, we are so off. No, I can call Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, I think, I think a bad happened to Elise. We were, Who's closest, Andrew? Yeah. <clears throat> can we send Andrew? Andrew and Lauren. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway. Hi, Elise. Hello, Elise. Goodness. We're here to pull... I can't... Hang on. (laughs) Wait, I didn't finish. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Oh, my God. We're going (laughs) to... Fuck. (laughs) This is a mess. This is outtakes for the Patreon when we go. (laughs) Start again. (laughs) 